Welcome to The Lens with me, Ollie Barrett. The Lens is a business in the community podcast powered by Fujitsu in partnership with McCann. My first guest today is Francis O'Grady, the General Secretary of the Trades Union Congress, made up of 48 different unions and almost 6 million members. My second guest is Sasha Howard, who's a product manager at award-winning digital transformation firm Freeformers. We talk about the concept of good work, what it means and where some employers may be falling short. We discuss how technology is completely changing how businesses operate and when welcome support becomes unwelcome surveillance. Let's get to the conversation. Francis, Sasha, welcome. Thank you. Thank you. Pleasure to be here. Well, it's lovely to meet you for the first time. Sasha, I'm going to start with you. Freeformers, it already sounds quite a cool and engaging company. I want to know what is Freeformers and what is a Freeformer? does, doesn't it? I've had clients call it, you are the Transformers. It's <laughs> the, the Optimus Prime. Exactly, exactly. Um, so Freeformers are a digital technology startup, which is very exciting to work in because we are ever evolving. And our mission is to build the digital economy for all. Um, and what does that mean? Well, we recognise that uh, the nature of work is changing and we have a responsibility and a mission to empower workforces to be a adaptable to those changes. And you've worked with a massive range of organisations. We'll come on to this and what it involves uh, day to day. But I suppose a bit more personally, tell us about your own journey. So taking it right back to, I suppose, the first ever form of employment, I worked at a pretty fancy hairdresser's in the um, small town in Sussex that I grew up. And when I think about my role there, I actually imagine a bit of a um, comedy storyboard of me in various areas of the salon holding a kind of scrubbing instrument, including um, a toothbrush to tackle the... um, bird excrement um, outside. So that's when we do various different things. And then... That sounds like a weird and terrible punishment <laughs> to me. It does have it a was. bit of Harry Potter about it, doesn't yeah, it? Yeah, but it was made better by the um, Ferrero Rochers that were given out with coffees that I would sometimes eat. Oh, I see, um, I see. You're in the store cupboard. That was snaffling it. Snaffling those, I get it. Um, and then from there, I um, had various um, few roles in hospitality until I took it upon myself to get a proper job. Mm. And, you mm. know, what has the hallmark of a proper job? Well, it was um, nine to five and and probably something to do with finance. Ah. So I went and joined um, a retail bank and was there for a little while until I grew a little bit kind of restless and was looking for um, something else, a new challenge, and then was lucky enough to be afforded the opportunity to, with that same bank, work with a bit of a kind of outreach programme whereby we, um, myself and my colleague, would reach out to local companies and schools and provide financial wellbeing seminars. Mm -hmm. So from the kind of cold outreach all the way to um, facilitating a workshop and helping those employees to understand and demystify things like mortgages and what on earth a credit card balance transfer is because it was amazing the kind of level of disparity there between young people right through to the kind of older generation that they're just as a big question mark so yeah and it could be anything I guess savings interests and so on so so two quick questions um after your studies uh you didn't go to university it's a Mm -hmm. huge question isn't it facing uh facing people should I go uh, should I not go give us a quick reflection on there are, there are so many paths to success, aren't there? Tell, tell me why you chose that path. Yeah, definitely. I don't think it was so much of a conscious choice and one that I can say until very recently I was quite embarrassed by. It's something that, you know, I wouldn't necessarily advertise and I find that the question is where did you study at university right. opposed to did you? Um, and so that kind of was the cause of some of that embarrassment. Um, but I, I kind of lacked this thing there was a bit of a void that I thought needed to be filled by a subject area or something that I particularly was interested in I didn't really have that so um, I chose a different path which actually I think was less chosen and more kind of opportunity I seem to have fallen into various things um, which I'm very grateful for because I'm really happy to be where I am now well not only that but you the first job you land is with one of the world's biggest employers any any tip for anyone listening about how you snag that first opportunity because the numbers are uh, pretty intimidating actually anything you know you did that helped you secure it I think and this is a reflection of the work I do with Freeformers is just being that 
adaptable person that can demonstrate a range of attributes that mean that you can almost fall into any role, you can learn any skill and we know that and I'm sure we'll talk about those skills are likely to change as the kind of nature and digital environment does. So just being somebody that can demonstrate a range of skills and willingness to learn. And I think it's really interesting because you are in the business of digital transformation. Freeformers is a member of business in the community. And you've already hinted, I suppose, at that idea of responsible business. But I just want to get a bit more of a flavour of the day-to-day work that you're doing. Give us, without necessarily naming names, just give us a sense of the sort of changes that you are trying to bring about. Sure. So um, as I mentioned at the beginning, we are ever evolving. And as I joined Freeformers, it was as a coach to actually facilitate those face-to-face workshops with um, generally members of the frontline workforce. Um, We've since kind of transformed our model um, to more of a champion programme. So we will enable selected individuals within those organisations and empower them to lead their own um, workshops or content with their colleagues. And that kind of sustains that social learning model. So it's less of a, we went to this workshop one time, it was great, we learnt all of these things and then next week we forgot about it. This is a um, regular and routine way of sharing those new messages and those messages come in the form of the product we're developing. So um, I've now got a new role as um, product manager which um, sees me work with uh, our tech team to develop our learning app. So it's a platform whereby we will host um, some session plans, I suppose you would call them, um, where the champions will use that content to facilitate on average about 15-minute sessions with their colleagues. Okay, and when you're within those large organisations, what tends to be um, the response to the programmes? Are they happy to see you? Is there resistance? What do you think they're secretly thinking? It's really funny, actually, because I find there's a real kind of seesaw of... There's a residual anger towards these big conglomerates that, you know, we're we're being used and we're stretched and we're overworked and we're underpaid. And there's this real sense of that resistance, I suppose, towards their employer. But then on the other hand, I've always found a sense of loyalty. And it's one that I had myself mm. when working for a global retail bank. Um, but in so many of our clients, you will see individuals, whether they like and are motivated by their work, they are so often very loyal and, I suppose, promoters of that of that company themselves. Mm. But when we come in, yes, back to your question, I think sometimes there's a bit of resistance in, OK, so we're being upskilled now so that we can work harder and, you know, you can get rid of some of us because right. um, we're now more efficient. Mm. So there's a little bit of that. And, and how, how does that sit, that sense we only need to walk into the local, local supermarket to see a machine doing what maybe a few years ago a human would have done? Is, is there that sense that having a job replaced is a threat or maybe it's an opportunity because it means that they can move on to another one? Yeah, I think... And often when in, the, I suppose, the previous model of Freeformers, um, when we were coaching the face-to-face sessions, you would always spend time working through some of this resistance and those feelings of, yes, we we are perhaps going to be replaced by the robots in the future. So there is that. But once you work around that, and um, a keen focus of ours is on the mindset. Mm. So the ability to accept these changes are coming and understand that where machines and robots will have a place in the future of work, so will humans, but their role will be, as we so often hear, especially on this podcast, will be more around those personal attributes. So a robot can't demonstrate empathy. And therefore, there is a a real onus on, on you as the workforce to upskill in these areas. Right. So the chief exec listening will say, agreed, Sasha, it is about mindset. So give us a practical thought on how you might shift mm. a mindset. Does it happen in the classroom, through mm. doing? What's your experience? The growth mindset was a great place to start and that we in some of our workshops will talk about it's it's the reflection that something hard and difficult isn't bad, it's an opportunity and it's um, a place for you to develop skills and, and work hard to achieve something and have that sense of achievement. When you see uh, bosses of very large companies earning um, huge amounts of money, nine, ten million pounds a year, is your take good for them? What is the measure of success? Is it level of stress? Well, I know for myself when working in a pub, I probably felt the massive levels of stress. It's all subjective. And I often find the, I suppose, the higher I 
climb or the different successful people that I meet, I often kind of question what they do in their day to day. That my, that my. Um, I'm sorry, Sasha. At this point, is is. Looking at me through amazing my friends, not Francis, <laughs> and, and she is right to. <laughs> no, I, I, I just, I mean that it's the the time that you spend with people on on the front line who are feeling this this subjective stress yeah. and and really working the kind of fingers to to the bone and all of these things. So you think what what's the reward there? Because if it's not personal motivation or enjoyment in their role and it's not the pay in comparison to these big bosses, then what is really for them? Indeed. Well, let's hold that thought as I welcome Francis O'Grady to the lens. Welcome, Francis. Thank you. Um, it's great to meet you. you. You are the General Secretary of the Trades Union Congress, the TUC. Now you have 48 member unions. And we'll come on to a quick recap about the TUC itself. But I'd like to take you back. You were born in Oxford. Uh, your first beginnings in life, your first ever job. I started work quite early, which I think was pretty common for people from ordinary backgrounds then so um, paper round 12 uh, working in a corner shop 13 my favorite ever working in a news agent because I got to read everything yes but also two jobbing, three jobbing. I uh, started working in the colleges, in the kitchens, which is where um, I first uh, joined a union, and also Marks and Spencers. I left home at 17, so I got a part-time job at Marks and Spencers and carried on at school part-time. I'm not sure if I should say that. Yes, was that legal or not? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, so, you know, it's. I always think it's great thinking about favourite jobs, which was... Um, I did enjoy shop work. I really enjoyed shop work Um, and worst ever jobs. And one of those has to be um, when I worked in a fast food joint. And um, my job as the newcomer was to peel buckets full of onions. So if there was a case for new technology, making jobs better, something that would deal with, (laughs) which I suspect they've already sorted. (laughs) But at that time, it was by hand and it was miserable. And it brought a tear to the eye, I know. Well, we will peel peel back the layers uh, to, to this example. But specifically, what made that bad work was that it was tedious? It was tedious and also I was missing... um the customer contact up front. And I think there's something behind that, which is, you know, a big challenge in terms of technology and certainly some of the factories I visit, which have become depopulated. So even though in the old days people were doing sign language to the people working next to them, there was somebody working next to you and you did communicate. Mm. And I think human beings are social creatures. Mm. We want, we go to work partly Yes, to earn a livelihood, but also because we want the company. We want to be with other people. Absolutely. And it just strikes me, Francis, knowing a bit about your background, you have always been passionate about standing up for groups in society who are being discriminated against. And I do wonder where the origins of that were. Well, it it no doubt partly comes from family. You know, um, my dad was a shop steward. My mum, uh, she got her best job was in the NHS. Um, so trade unionism was always part of our lives. It was always talked about over the kitchen table. Um, but also, I think I am deeply nosy. I know I, one of the reasons I love organising work is I love going around the back of workplaces. And so you see front of house, but what's really going on in the canteen or really going on in the storeroom? I, you know, I find all that fascinating, how it actually works. And the shop floor viewpoint, which often gets ignored. And there is massive wisdom and expertise on the shop floor. In fact, certainly in terms of new technology, what we find is... Um, that the biggest resistance to the introduction of new technology is because nobody's asking our opinion. You know, and actually, if you do involve people through unions, independent democratic organisations, then people have that feeling of, I've got a bit of power here, I will be heard, and maybe somebody will actually listen and use one of my ideas for how we could do it better. And that whole concept of strength in numbers, power in numbers, is obviously core uh, to the trade union movement. Just give us a quick reminder uh, for our our listener on 
the TUC. It's made up of a number of organisations. But maybe if we start at that unit of the of, yeah. of trade we're, union. We're the umbrella organisation for trade unions in Britain and we organise people in all walks of life from footballers and artists to factory workers, shop workers, scientists, engineers, uh, you know, in the creative industries, it, every walk of life. But we want to be much bigger. Majority of our membership are women for the first time in our history. And I can feel that change. Uh, that's reflected, obviously, in terms of our TUC General Council, our governing body. Uh, but you see more women leaders coming up at every level. And, so almost and, six million members. Yeah. And of course, work is changing dramatically. So the kind of experience of uh, some of our new uh, younger members, whether that's working in McDonald's or Sports Direct or whether it's working in um, start tech startups, you know, there are, are new ways of working that we've got to quickly get our heads around in order to be relevant to that new well, membership. Get your heads around. And also, to what extent do you feel you've got your arms around some of those newer sorts of organisations and industries, or do they sit outside uh, the trade union Well, of course, family? Inter interestingly, you know, I have a lot more conversations with business leaders of all kinds than people might think, you know. So we do talk to platform employers, we do talk to uh, startups, um, and very often very honest conversations. I mean, you know, one of the things that really strikes me is that if you're leading a new business that grows really quickly and suddenly you're employing lots of people and you yourself are age 24, you know, there are big kind of uh, experience gaps in what works and what doesn't. And again, these are ways that unions can help. You know, I know that strikes and disputes tend to hit the press headlines, but in fact, the majority of union work is is about solving problems and making working lives better. You right. know, that's what we're trying to do day to day. Yeah, well, famously, Facebook had a motto, didn't it? Move fast and break things. Yeah. Which it changed because in their admission, things got broken. Yeah. How confident are you that some of these very large tech firms are treating their workers well? And what gives you cause for concern? Tech can be a great liberator. It could be wonderful in terms of designing out drudgery and discrimination. Um, you know, there's huge potential there. But too often uh, we see it reinforcing and entrenching uh, discrimination, but also quite oppressive working conditions. You know, I know that... Um, Amazon uh, uh, are very defensive of the way they treat their workers, but we talk to them and we know how far they are working day in, day out. We know what it means to be tracked going to the toilet, to feel like you are a unit of labour rather than a human being. And, you know, that has to change. We know what it means to be paid peanuts or to be have your shifts cancelled at the last minute when you've got children to raise. This is the stuff of real life. And, and I think, you know, we need a new bargain. We need a new deal. So let's have um, just a, a moment or two to zoom into that a bit. You've said publicly recently Amazon needs to look after its staff. What's an example you've seen there or elsewhere where they're really failing to do that. Just help us bring it to life a little bit. Well, I think not just Amazon, lots of other companies course, of where we've seen, frankly, and you know, you've seen the House of Commons Select Committee reports on some of those companies where it's like a return to Dickensian times. It's sort of 21st century exploitation, but in many ways, not that different to what was going on on the dock quayside <laughs> or at the factory gate in the 19th century. So zero hours, massive problem. Uh, I know people say people love it. Um, well, all the evidence is that they don't and also that the majority of zero hours workers are actually working 24 hours a week on average. They want some predictability to know when they're going to work. They want a decent wage you can raise a family on or live a decent life on. And, you know, maybe at the other end of the spectrum, you know, that right to switch off. I'm really interested in that new law in France that Ireland is now considering that, no, you're not 24-7 available right. on the end of an email um, or a WhatsApp. Okay. You know, you have the right to some privacy, to your own life. 
and okay. better life inside work, okay, not it, just work-life balance. Well, let's explore that flexibility a bit. By the way, on zero-hours contracts, I notice um, they're up, aren't they, on last year? They're up 15%, yeah. 896,000 zero-hours contracts. It's, it's growing, growing again. again. And I think the practical policy answer to this is, is not that complicated, that people should have the right to guaranteed hours. So if you're genuinely uh, wanting to work the odd hour, that's fine. But if you find yourself regularly over, say, six months or a year working 24 hours a week, I think a decent employer would understand that workers should have the right to have that guaranteed. Right. And as we explore this, Sasha, and let me say for the record, I consider Freeforms to be a very decent employer, literally an award-winning decent employer through business and the community. A flip side of what Francis is talking about, this opportunity to see what your teams are doing when they're doing it, Seeing that with a glass half full, that can really drive productivity, maybe, well-being. Because in a sense, that is at the core of some of the platforms that you're talking about, isn't it? Having a take on who's doing what and when. How do you see it? I suppose my experience at the moment of working within this startup, and I mean, at the moment we're probably 40 employees, but the... I suppose the pace and change is, is so quick that you're kind of, you've, you've almost got your head in the sand and so that visibility sometimes isn't there on, on your colleagues. But I think kind of back to the um, zero hours piece and particularly Amazon, it's, it's funny to hear you say this because I think from my perspective, you see these companies, these like global um, tech brands and you, they're so glamorized it's like the yeah you know we wear t-shirts and jeans to work we we do what we want we have massages at google and we live the life and actually i think like you're saying francis when it comes to the research people are being a little bit hard done by i think there's a real read across not just to pay and pay inequality which is a massive issue but also just that, again, how people are treated at work. Uh, I don't know whether you want to talk about this separately, but, you know, we've identified this real pattern where, where young women in particular are much more likely to be on insecure contracts. How powerful do you feel when it comes to speaking up if, for example, you've experienced sexual harassment? And, you know, what was very clear from our polling and also our discussions with young women on a pretty big scale was that they were much more likely to walk out of a job than report that kind of harassment at work. And you could root that back to the fact that if you're on an insecure contract, you're not going to stick your head above the parapet. It's, it's almost hard the fragility enough. of it's that hard employment. Enough. Exactly. So we're seeing that kind of imbalance of power as well as wealth. And ultimately, I think that's bad for us all because companies don't exist outside of society. I think all of us have an obligation to society. We should have that wider purpose that is about creating a decent society, which we all need in order to grow and prosper. Right. Now, on this um, ability to grow and prosper, I suppose, Sasha, there's a school of thought that says, you know, we employ grown-ups. We empower you to do your work when you want, where you want, and as long as you hit the outcomes we've outlined, how you want. And that could sound quite inspiring, quite liberating. And yet, Francis, you've made me think it's a bit sinister. <laughs> I think for me, actually, um, coming from a more, uh, you know, a large corporate to this this world of absolutely autonomous work, and it is your 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 leader of your week, and we've got remote working, um, so you work wherever you like, um, which for me was so liberating. I think I was crying out for this autonomy, and it's, you know, I will I will find that some days I'm working from a coffee shop on a Sunday, and it's not because I have to; it's because I want to. Mm. It's because I want to come in on a Monday and feel like I'm ready to to begin my week, but. I definitely respect that with that there has to be some some reflection that that can be taken too far by employers. I think from my perspective perhaps working for such a small company um, that's recognised and I feel very comfortable that if I was ever stressed or stretched I would reach out straight away. I think, you know. So Francis, question, how does the 2019 employer empower the Sasha in this example who mm. does feel pretty liberated mm. by this yeah. huge flexibility without taking advantage of her peer who feels very differently about that. Yeah. 
And by the way, you know, I'm all in favour of flexibility. Um, again, certainly if you if you have kids or you're looking after elderly parents, that flexibility can be a kind of lifesaver. But also that sense of having control over your work. I think most of us want that sense of we want to feel proud of where we work. We want to have some control over what we do. We don't want somebody breathing over our shoulder constantly about how we do it. Um, but for me, that's where unions are absolutely at the heart of this. So we're not naive. We don't pretend that uh, big businesses are collectives or democracies, but we do believe that staff should have a democratic voice. And the only independent voice there is, you know, in terms of international law, is independent trade unions. And because we do have to trade sometimes, don't we, in real life, in at home, we have to trade between what we individually want and what's good for the collective. And you ha- there has to be some give and take. And on that, though, Francis, on the breathing down the neck, I mean, it sounds ogre-like in your metaphor. Are you then objecting to employers monitoring closely the work of their employees using technology? I just want to just bottom that out a little bit because it Um, sounds like you might be. I think what's been really interesting, not just in the work that the TUC and unions have done, but also organisations like the Fabian Society, was how many workers believe that they're being subject to surveillance without their consent. And that's quite big stuff, isn't it? You know, especially if you're being tracked in terms of your health, your minute to minute patterns. Uh, you know, that's that's quite, that feels quite big brotherish to a lot of people. Yes. Um, and, you know, and of course, that plays out in the big debates that we've seen about uh, tech companies harvesting information on an industrial scale from populations, using it, uh, frankly, politically, as well as for profit, um, you know, that there is a growing concern. And it seems to me that one of the big 21st century challenges is how do we what are our rights? What Again, you know, what are the institutions that are going to regulate these massive monopolies that have not just industrial power but political power for which we very often are working for free without even knowing it? But surely we should be talking about uh, new technologies which we're told are going to create multi-billion pound gains productivity-wise. Let's talk about fair shares. And I'm obviously interested in what that means for people's pay packets, but I'm also interested in how we could use it to improve working lives. Yeah, and it, it seems to me this is at the core of what we're talking about. If we talk about good work, it's about fair pay and benefits. It's about security. You've and it could about. be about shorter working time. Indeed. So, um, so well, well, I wonder, Sasha, where does it all go? Four day weeks. Sounds great. Sign me up. <laughs> but I, I think whilst you were talking there, Francis, something that kept wearing around my head is that element of, of trust and how much more likely you are to want to perform and be productive and be the best version of yourself at work if you do feel trusted in that role and this this big brother style of you've been in the bathroom for six minutes that's two minutes longer than you should be allowed you know and I I, again recalling back to this time uh, at a big corporate it's because I know that um, you know if I have taken a five minute less of my lunch I'm leaving five minutes early and it's Mm. that mindset of you give nothing to me so I will give nothing to you and I'm I'm so thrilled to be in an environment now where like I said I I want to work because because I want to and not because I am told to or it's expected of me or I'm not trusted to do my job. Exactly. And I think a kind of honest conversation about that, but also about that opportunity for win-wins. I know it sounds like a cliche, but I think... People do want to do their jobs well. You know, there are always going to be some people in life, frankly, at all levels who only care about themselves. But most people do want to do a good job that they feel proud of. Um, so, you know, let's let's have that open conversation about what that bargain is. And, you know, as I say, I think the problem is that in too many private sector companies, again, it's still the sort of tech equivalent of the suggestion box and, you, you know, it's like sticking a letter to Santa Claus up the chimney. You've no mm. idea where it ends up. But also it's, it's, <laughs> well, certainly what you get back on Christmas Day. It, it, it's also on the suggestion box um, reliant on somebody saying something rather than on listening. Yeah. Which, when you go back to your shop floor analogies, is the key to insight. 
Yeah, exactly. And I, and by the way, you know, I think we have challenges too. We've been doing a lot of work. We've set up a digital lab at Congress House. Um, yes, to look at how we use digital tools for campaigning and so on, but also to look at new digital models of trade unionism that work for the new workforce. Um, so I'm you know, certainly not complacent, no. but I, I don't, nobody else has been able to tell me how do we know that workers are saying what they really feel without fear other than through an independent trade union. No, understood, because going back to this point about good work, it's also around, um, I mean, let's be crude, there is a strong business case, isn't there, in terms of reducing absenteeism, higher levels of engagement, and crucially, I guess, improving well-being. It's always that question of do you want to take the low road or do you want to take the high road again I think the international evidence shows us that you can boost productivity by sweating people turning the screw paying them peanuts you can do it that way or you can do it by making them feel valued Mm. involved listened to taken seriously um, feeling safe uh, you know Mm. respected Uh, so there's a choice to be made here and you know, it's it's one of the reasons why I think there's a much broader interest, not just trade unions, but in taking some of these giants to task who do behave badly because they, they're dragging down everybody else. It's unfair competition. Right. It's not fair on the good guys, frankly, who want to do the right thing, but they're being undercut by people who cannot even pay their workers a living wage. And you would go as far as to call those tech giants the bad guys? Oh, without doubt, without doubt. And I... I Again, you know, I'm conscious uh, this isn't just an issue for Britain. I think we need to, you know, in the way that we thought about Bretton Woods after the Second World War uh, or the way that uh, the ILO that's celebrating its anniversary, you know, the International Labour Organization, an arm of the UN, we need to think about what are the new ways and new institutions and new ethics that we will need to create a technology that works for everybody, yes. not just the 1%. And I see huge cause for concern when I interview people who are behind the growth of some of these huge tech companies that they have inadvertently created very toxic cultures in some cases. Yeah, you know, and and like I say, you can be earning a very handsome wage um, as a woman in the tech industry, but we know that discrimination still runs very deep, and certainly for black and ethnic minority workers too. Um, so, so a couple of questions for each other. Francis, listening to uh, Sasha's story, do you have a question for Sasha about her work? Um, about some of this conversation, I suppose. Do you know what? That when, you, when you said about, um, I thought it was kind of classic and it could have been me saying, oh, I just almost like I got lucky mm-hmm. uh, in the opportunities that sort of happened to me somehow mm-hmm. randomly. And there's a bit of me that wanted to say, no, no, you made your <laughs> luck. You know, it's classic kind of what women do. But another part of me that actually thought, No, do you know what? I agree with you. I think ultimately a lot of it is luck. And certainly when you look at who gets to the top, uh, who the wealthy are, you know, it's pretty lucky to inherit wealth. (laughs) It's pretty lucky if it's your mum or dad who get you an internship in a, you know, (laughs) high brand company. Um, So I think actually it's refreshingly honest that you talked about luck Mm. uh, in life because I think that's true. And Francis, I will get very told off by my colleagues now because that is something I must work on. And it's so typical, isn't it, that that men will kind of bolster in and say, you know, I did this amazing thing and I got this job and it's great. Um, whereas women, yes, tend to, yeah, well, you know, I did a thing and it, yeah, it led me here. Um, and so, yes, on one part, I, I'm, I suppose I must get better at that. But on thinking around the luck side... Um, I suppose personally, where I said at the beginning, I, I felt like I was lacking that burning interest or some, that, that goal to work towards. And I've really struggled without having that and thinking, well, I must be working towards this this special thing. But without that, I think it's left a bit of an open playing field to be able to accept opportunities that, that have kind of come my way. So, um, yes, I think an element of luck and, and that almost blank canvas to say, yeah, do you know what? I think I'm going to try that. And that sounds great. And, I, and I'll work really hard. It's, I think I respect that, perhaps. I think of myself as a very ambitious person without ambitions, if that makes sense. <laughs> I love it. Without the specifics to aim But at. I also, what I think is really important is, actually, we don't have to ape men or we don't have to ape those who are already in positions of power in the mm-hmm. way that 
you know, our own style of leadership, if mm. you like. And, you know, to to be honest about how luck does play it apart, mm-hmm. um, not to have that kind of innate sense of entitlement, but to have a measure of humility. We, you know, I am so lucky in that I love my job. A lot of people don't. Mm. And, you know, it is that thing. Of, I do want everybody to have the chance to love their job. Um, but I also do want to see many more women leaders. And we've got to find our own path, I think. Yeah, well, I'm, I'm going to ask you momentarily, Francis, for a piece of advice to your former self. And before I do, Sasha, do you have a question for Francis? Yeah, I suppose leading on from that point in wanting to see more influential women in, in power, and um, I'd say how would you like to see businesses tackling that barrier to entry or that equal opportunity and that it's not just them saying we will not discriminate against certain people, but it's how do we empower those people to to think that they even can go for those roles. I suppose, where do you see businesses playing a part in that? Yeah, and I do I do see a lot of businesses and organisations actually genuinely, I think, taking this seriously, um, not not just on gender, but race and, and other forms of discrimination too. Um, and, you know, and I would say that we, a lot of us, I would include ourselves in this, you know, we've got more work to do. Um, and we're all finding finding our way. I think, you know, certainly just from my own experience, if you like, as an employer at the TUC, um, a couple of things, we sort of remodelled some of our staffing structures, created new roles, for example, for campaigns and policy officers. Mm. And it was really interesting that we got a lot more young women and particularly black and I think minority mm. women going for those roles. So it was almost like, did the job roles appeal to people's yeah. sense of what was possible? Can I get in the door? I'm really interested by that. And, and and also we just, again, it sounds really simple and small, but just kind of opening the doors and saying, if you want to come in and just, just see us, come and have a cup of tea in a group. And it's loads and loads of people have taken up that opportunity. Yeah. And it was like, oh, it's a really simple, obvious thing. But I think a lot of people would have an image of us of still being kind of white male dominated. Mm. And I'm not saying we're perfect, by the way, but I am saying that when people come in, it's like, oh, it's people like me who I can relate to. Yeah. It's funny about the companies that talk about accessibility, which are fundamentally inaccessible. Yeah, mm. yeah. I think there's a real, for me as well, a real transparency piece. And it's I've, so often I think we're in our, our kind of London bubble, aren't we? But when I think back to, you know, growing up in a small town in Sussex, there's that visibility on work and that kind of mystifying what's involved in exactly. these roles. And I absolutely love that opening. Just come and have a coffee and see what we do. But that is so fundamentally missing. And sometimes I think about, you know, the future and jobs that I might like to go towards. But it's, what does that even involve? Like, how do you even begin to, to tread along that pathway? So I so agree. And I, and I do think, and this is something I want to say more about, really, without being... Um, you know, I don't want to get, again get into kind of old arguments, but it is still true that in Britain today, old school tie networks, uh, blue eyed boy syndromes, it's still there. And as you say, if you if you come from a family where you haven't got a, you don't, none of your family have ever been to university, none of them have ever been a doctor or a lawyer. It is a mystery. It's mm. like. How do you how do you get there? And I absolutely agree in terms of leadership more generally as well that demystifying that and talking about it in plain language, what it's really like, and rather than creating this, you know, mystery mm-hmm. of the strongman leader, you know, yeah, it can be stressful sometimes and it can be long hours sometimes, but it's. I loved what you said. It's never going to be as stressful as working behind a bar or being on low pay or, you know, being stuck on benefits. Or using that toothbrush in the salon. (laughs) Yeah, exactly. I can't get it out of my mind. (laughs) Francis, can I just pick you up? You've mentioned it a couple of times, firstly on the internship, secondly on the old school tie. Is there something fundamentally wrong with families helping their own? If we go back to your own background, your father working in Cowley, um, isn't that what families have always done? Or do you fundamentally take objection to that as a concept? You see, I, I don't think anybody has a divine right to a particular job or role in, in life. And I think I would like to live in a society where there is a sense of we've all earned it 
Um, and we work hard and we're honest and we're fair. And, you know, I mean, I've talked to loads of young people who are from working class backgrounds, who are incredibly talented from different parts of the country. The chance of an unpaid internship in London, forget it. Forget it. It's hard enough for young people in London living at home with their families, never mind somebody from Hull or Barnsley or wherever it might be, becoming an unpaid intern in journalism, for example. It's never going to happen. And if that is the entry point now for many of these key professions, then it locks out people from ordinary Mm. backgrounds. There's no doubt. Now, again, we've seen some progress um, and, you know, we've certainly been campaigning hard on it. It's still pretty widespread. Mm. I understand that. I guess my question is, if the proprietor of a salon in Sussex gives Mm. their nephew a week's work experience, to what extent do you object to that? A work experience is in a different category anyway, you know, and and that's actually governed by... um, So a job. A job? Well, how would people think about um, the next general secretary of the TUC being my daughter or son? You know, I mean, (laughs) we're not a dynasty. Uh, We live in a democracy. I, I would like to see those values in the economic sphere as well as the political sphere, you know, in the sense that... Um, and I, and I, I think organisations suffer from if there's a sense that, you know, this is all rigged mm. and it's all about patronage and it's all about looking after your own. I don't think that's good for an organisation's reputation. Yeah, I just guess this is a conversation, isn't it, about social mobility and we might draw the line at... Blood. It sounds like Game of Thrones, doesn't it? Um, <laughs> but presumably there are situations when there is a social bond there. It's a neighbour, it's a connection. And I just wonder whether sometimes we don't object to my Sussex example, but we do if it's a picture editor at Tatler. Well, I will do everything I can uh, to encourage and build the confidence of young working class people to follow their dreams. And I think they're as entitled... <laughs> to have those dreams as anybody else or any anybody from any class that's my point but i i think it the truth is the system is rigged against um you know huge numbers of people and that to me seems like a waste of talent uh and pretty crushing for those individuals who uh, should have that right to do as well as they possibly can. Well, you know, it is about progression and training and skills and encouragement as much as the job you're in. And who who didn't or couldn't afford to go to university as well, I might kind of add from my own perspective there as well. And And the psychology of it, you know, of having that debt, I think, again, very different if you come from a wealthy family. Yeah, <laughs> and not to kind of harbour on too long, but um, I think back to the goals point in that studying for three years for something that you think you want to do and then you're you're kind of back, you're cornered into this subject area that you studied for and you come out and you realise it was something yeah. entirely different because you didn't have a coffee yeah. um, at the TUC <laughs> yeah. and you didn't know what it was really like. Yeah. So. Right. Yeah. So on that, I'm going to come to my quickfire questions, including who you'd most like to have a coffee with. But it does strike me, funnily enough, talking of what you studied, Francis, you studied politics and modern history up I at did. Manchester. And you've worked, I mean, you've been a campaigner all your life, but actually on the national minimum wage, on equal pay for women. Um, just very briefly, on the unwon battles, just help us look down this next couple of years, particularly given the lens has a very business audience. What do we really need to be marking out and drawing huge attention to? What's 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 not yet won? We've been calling for a new deal for workers and some might say we're not ambitious enough. We want everybody to have a great job. We want everybody to have their voice heard through their union. Uh, we want them to be safe and healthy and not just physically but mentally too. We want them to be treated decently and to have that opportunity to progress without snobbery getting in the way of who gets those chances but I think kind of at a level of the UK clearly we're facing huge challenges on Brexit Uh, so that is a big worry for us and I think again without sounding too prissy about it that unions do have a bigger social role yes for social justice and we'd like to see an end to austerity uh, but also as defenders of democracy and you know clearly uh, we have a 
very, very polarised country at the moment. But I am really worried about the rise of the far right. And this is something that traditionally the trade union movement has taken on racism and taken on the far right. And we will continue to do that. Uh, But I, I guess, you know, the headline is we need a new bargain, a new deal. We can't carry on as we're carrying on with inequality at the level it's at. Uh, Bosses, you know, still, according to the latest figures, raking it in. Um, That kind of sense of mistrust, it's bad for business, but it's also bad for our communities and our society. And as you've said, that conversation, that new deal needs to involve every sector. Yeah, absolutely. We've all got to be at the table. So let me ask you this question, given we are at this particular uh, table today. Sasha, who would you most like to meet for coffee? They've got to be alive. It would be somebody who is so far removed from what I do. It would be somebody (laughs) who's a leading scientist or something that I, I absolutely love spending time with and having crazy conversations with people that think differently to me. I think there's so much power and value in diversity of thought and just being able to hear different perspectives that just change your view and give you that light bulb moment. So that's quite unsatisfying because I haven't named anyone, partly because... They're so far removed that I don't know anybody in that. <laughs> I like it. No, it's a great, it's a great answer. I love so, it. Francis. Um, well, apart from Sasha, who I'm really hoping we'll have a follow-up coffee after this, I feel uh, at a personal level I need a bit of cheering up, given what's going on in the world. Um, Olivia Coleman, Oscar mm. winner, the favourite, is also a very proud equity member. And uh-huh. she did this lovely kind of uh, Twitter thing for us during our sort of annual Heart Unions Week where we kind of, you know, promote the pride in being a, a member of a union. Um, but she's also funny. And oh, she's so fabulous. I think I'd love to have a coffee with her. So this is the multi award winning public appeal. Olivia <laughs> Coleman. Olivia, if you're listening, uh, then, uh, then Francis mm. is waiting with the. Uh, with the kettle on, uh, <laughs> just, just down the road. Great. Uh, that's, okay, um, a book you recommend. doesn't have to be a business book. Well, the one I'm completely obsessed with currently is uh, Surveillance Capitalism uh, by Shoshana Zuboff, which is looking at this new model that we're in and I think raising positive and hopeful questions about, you know, what are the rules that we're going to play by? Because... Uh, You know, this is pretty daunting stuff. On the other hand, you know, we are people, we make choices, we can cooperate globally Mm. to make sure that there aren't abuses of power and that everybody does get fair shares. So let's get to it. And it takes me back to the conversation we've had today. On the one hand, you know, Big Boss is watching you. Mm. On the one hand, Deeply Sinister. On the other Big Boss is looking out Could for you. Could be wonderful. Could be yeah. wonderful. Right. To be continued, um, Sasha, any, any book you recommend? More from a kind of selfish perspective, a book that I won't reveal the full title of because I'm sure I'll get in trouble, but The Subtle Art of Giving a... Of Not Giving <laughs> of not. an F. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> is the actual title. Um, I won't, yeah, I won't repeat the last word. Um, it's, it's a fantastic book that challenges your perception of yourself and tackles that point of entitlement and it's a book that really stuck with me and has enabled me to I suppose recognize and check up on little kind of pieces around myself that um, are reflective in in work and personal life so it's a really great book. Excellent. Well, we will link to uh, both of those. Uh, but I, ho- I hope as a title that's not going to become the mantra for the government. <laughs> <laughs> Who knows? <laughs> well, so do I. That's all I'll say. Yeah. Uh, Sasha, I'm going to stay with you briefly. Um, a piece of advice to your former self, and this could be to yourself as a student or just as you started out, whatever you choose. Not everybody knows exactly what they are talking about. And if you fundamentally believe something or are confident in what you are saying and what you've observed, your opinion is just as valuable as anybody else's in the room. Um, and I say that coming from a perspective of... And to coin one of your kind of catchphrases, um, Francis is the male pale and stale. (laughs) I find nothing more enjoyable about being able to give my opinion with confidence and know that it is taken seriously by a room full of perhaps kind of hostile seeming people. So I think that's something I've learned along the way, but it is a struggle for young people to think that their opinion is valuable, you know, and and, um, 
worthwhile in in that sort of environment. Love it, and and I'm and I'm going to choose not to interpret that as meaning you don't have to know what you're talking about. No, uh, for, for the not second quite a time, fake it you make for the second it, time, it just makes me think you've met a number of people who are full of it. <laughs> No comment. <laughs> <laughs> Naming no names. Okay. All right. uh, it's, it's a cracking piece of advice. Thank you. Francis. So I guess I would like to reassure my younger self that it will all be all right and um, not to feel embarrassed about those strong opinions and passions that you held because you will be able to channel that into something positive where you can make change and it will all be all right. <laughs> I think that's great. Very relevant <laughs> advice. That, that Possibly not inspiring. But <laughs> no, no, that's brilliant. But uh, true. I think it's fascinating because thing. actually a brief scroll through, um, you know, recent news clippings shows you on the record about such a variety of things. So I do wonder, Francis, have, have, you, learned something <laughs> al- have you learned something along the way around <laughs> when to be clear and outspoken and when to keep your own counsel and keep your powder dry i think i think there is an issue about how many battlefronts you have open at once um but i also love the buzz of being in a democratic movement because just when you you know if you ever ever um, make the mistake of thinking you know it all (laughs) somebody will come along and challenge you or something you'll find out something new from new members and and you will be challenged and i think that's a good thing you know there's a risk in leadership of becoming too comfortable. So, yeah, I suppose, I guess, it's one of the reasons I love what I do is I am always learning and I think I need that, otherwise I'd get really bored. So there you go. And, you know, that's what I take away from my conversation with both of you. It's not saying this is what the future of work is or should be. It's much more let's have a conversation about um, and and explore our different perspectives. And I'm fascinated about how that plays out. Yeah. Well, let's get fair shares. Absolutely. Well, indeed, <laughs> and, uh, and 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 please do meet up after this. Yeah, uh, I'd love to. Thank you. It's been an absolute pleasure having you as my guests on the lens, Sasha Howard and Francis O'Grady. Thank you very much. Thank you. Thank too. you. You've been listening to The Lens with me, Ollie Barrett. If you like what you heard, please leave us a comment and subscribe to us on iTunes, and you'll get the latest episodes as they drop. The Lens is a business in the community programme powered by Fujitsu and supported by McCann. Today's episode is produced and directed by Harvey Winter with music and editing by Giselle Hall. Our executive producer is Sergio Lopez. Until next time, goodbye. Goodbye.